Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is, the he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. To that point, Father, would you speak to us this morning as we seek to see Jesus more clearly and as we seek to love him more deeply? Help us honor you in the way that we do that and help us enjoy you in your word, we ask in the name of our Lord. Amen. Amen. So as I mentioned, it's been about two years since I've been with you all and during that time a lot in our world has changed, right? Uh, a lot is happening in the world around us. Uh, in America, things are strange. Things are different. We're all trying to navigate. We're all trying to process. We're all trying to figure out how to take that next step in faith and how to honor the Lord in the way that we navigate everything, whether it be politics, whether it be the economy, whether it be anything going on around us, and certainly... How do, how do we navigate the things that are going on even within the church around the world? And the thing that is sort of pressing on my mind as, as I'm kind of trying to do that, as Tony mentioned, uh, I am uh, Slavic. I was born in Eastern Europe. English is my second language. I immigrated to the States as a fairly young man with my family. My wife is also uh, Slavic. She was born in Russia. I was born in Moldova. And what's going on in the world is Pretty, pretty awful. Uh, the, the war in Ukraine is, is a very strange thing. It's strange because we are now a people divided. Uh, as, as much as many people would like to say that those lines are uh, very distinct, I think they're a lot more blurry than a lot of us would like to think. My wife was born in Russia, grew up there. Her family is Russian through and through. We did a DNA test, and her DNA came up something like 95% Ukrainian. Uh, I have always been convinced that I'm Russian, and then I did a DNA test, and I'm 70% Ukrainian and Romanian, and so we're all a people that are kind of crossed over, and yet we, we are a people who also cling to our national identities. And as we kind of try to figure out what's going on with this war, why has Russia attacked Ukraine, why are all of these things happening, 
it's not as simple as just pointing to the one thing. Well, it's easy to say, well, it's NATO. And it's easy to say, well, it's Putin. And it's easy to say, well, it's this. But the fact of the matter is there's so much hatred and so much animosity along those borders and along those national divides that it has really grown to be this bizarre thing where brothers are hating brothers. And that's not an exaggeration. There are families that are split over that border. There are actual brothers and sisters that are split over that border. And this last weekend, um, I was at our home church where we host an annual conference for pastors from all over the world. And our church actually oversees a, a small teaching center in Ukraine where we train pastors and we work with ministry leaders. And one of those ministry leaders came, uh, and right as he came to uh, to the States and flew here to speak for this conference, all this broke out. And I don't know how much you guys are monitoring the news, but he's from the city of Kharkiv, uh, also known as Kharkiv, I think. And uh, that city is flattened. And when he landed, he learned that his church was blown up, his home was blown up, and four members of their few hundred member church have stayed in the city. Everyone else has gone all over Europe. Uh, about 5% of Ukraine is now scattered all over Europe. It's expected that that will be 10% of Ukraine in no time. Imagine if one-tenth of our country just disappeared. Um, and so as all of this is happening, Christians are finding themselves asking these questions of what does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to decide whether to stay or to go? What does it mean to think about safety and security? What does it mean to love my enemy? What does it mean to love my brother? What does it mean when my enemy is my brother? What does it mean to figure out how to be a faithful Christian when all I can think about is the next meal I'm going to get or not? What does it mean to share the gospel when all anybody wants to know is how do I survive today? What does it mean to think of the eternal when there's a bomb blowing up next door? And we think that these things are much easier when difficulty and trial come, but it's not that easy. I was speaking to a pastor recently who's been in contact and supporting a ministry in Ukraine where there's a minister trying to be faithful and he's trying to evangelize and he's going out in the streets of these war-torn cities and he's trying to hand out New Testaments and he's trying to pray with people. And guess what the response is? People don't want to pray. People don't want to talk. And even in the midst of decay and despair and just terrifying circumstances, people still don't stop to think about the eternal. And this is this common misconception that we have is that trial and difficulty always do that. Throughout church history, we've certainly seen that that has been the catalyst for revivals and things like that. But if the Lord doesn't act and if the Spirit doesn't move, people stay hardened in their sin. People continue to hate the Lord. People continue to hate their neighbor. People continue to think of their identity as an earthly one. I am Ukrainian. I'm Russian. I'm American. And that's a terrifying place to find yourself. Because this is the world that we live in. And by all accounts, it's not getting better. Uh, as Tony mentioned, my wife and I have been thinking about international missions, and we've been praying about this for a very long time. Uh, I've fallen in love with the country of Belarus, if you know where that's located. That's right between Poland and Russia, just north of Ukraine. 
And my wife and I have been going there for the last nine years. Well, I've been going there for about nine years. She started going about seven years ago with me. Um, and we've just fallen in love with these people. And I became friends with a dear pastor who's since planted a church, and he's been inviting us to join them and minister with them. And we, last summer, took, decided to try to take a step in faith and sold our house and went overseas and then realized that we need a little bit more time to plan and figure everything out. And our plan was, you know, Lord willing to figure that out by this winter or so. And then right as we figure out, okay, we got to go, the bombs started to drop. And the city where we're going is right on the border with, um, with Ukraine. And it's... The difficulty of Belarus is not just its proximity to Ukraine, but that President Vladimir Putin's one ally is Belarus. And uh, for whatever reason, the, the, the president there, who is, in all actuality, and this isn't me just saying that, he is a dictator. He's confessed this. He's a self-confessed dictator. Uh, he is in support of this war, and he is threatening to join the war effort. And he's been storing tanks and armored vehicles and everything in the city where we, my wife and I were planning to head. So I'm staying in touch with the church there, but they too are starting to flee. People are starting to leave, and we're trying to figure out, do we go now? Do we go later? Do we wait? And all of that is um, chaotic. So it's chaos at home. It's chaos overseas. We think about what's going on in other parts of the world. It's not as simple. I have friends in different parts of Europe. I have friends in Asia. I have uh, friends that I studied with in seminary who are ministering in all kinds of ministry contexts. And the thing that we keep coming back to is, what is going on? It, it wasn't like this, like, two years ago. It was normal, right? Like, <laughs> what is happening? Why, why is there so much just despair? Why is there so much uncertainty? Why is the rug constantly being pulled out from under my feet? Why does nothing make sense? And then as soon as I'm just like starting to shake from all this COVID stuff, and they're like, okay, thank God, we're starting to move on with life slowly but surely. People are getting healthier, we're, we're seeing less deaths, and we're so grateful, and we're celebrating that. And then it's like, oh, a war broke out. Of course a war broke out, yeah. What else could go wrong right now? And so, friends, how do we find peace? What do we do? I mean, what, what if America enters the war tomorrow? What if Russia just thinks that they've had enough with the U.S. pushing back and not letting Putin do whatever he wants? And what if he just decides, whatever, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show them who's boss. Do we then have our peace? Or is it still the wait until things calm down here that we're hoping for? Brothers and sisters, that may not come. It's not promised. Quite the contrary is promised, in fact. We're told that things will get worse. It's not just rumors of wars, but wars. It's famine. It's illness. It's hatred. It's the escalation of sin and evil. How much evil have we seen in our country's history? How much evil have we seen against people groups and people with a certain skin color or people of a certain socioeconomic status? What do we expect? This is the world we live in. And so as I try to think and as I try to navigate, what do I do for my wife? How do I, how do I take care of her and how do I shepherd her? What do I do in the context of ministry? One name continues to ring true. Jesus. 
What else makes sense? Nothing. But there is this one who doesn't change. But there is this one who stayed the same. There is this one who's told me he loved me and proved it. There is this one who promised to never let me fall away. There is this one who's promised that he'll see me through to the end. There is this one who tells me there's a home waiting for me, where none of this stuff is going to be happening. Let's look at him. Strange times, brothers and sisters. But throughout the history of the world, and throughout the church's history, there's certainly been various hardships and difficulties. There have been obstacles to Christians being able to practice their faith. There have been things that have stood in the way of the corporate assembly of the saints. And so in that sense, us being hindered from even gathering together, us being uh, experiencing difficulty as we think about the world around us, this isn't anything new. But the state of the church, uh, the state of what, 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 what Christians find as their identity nowadays, whether that's a national identity or a spiritual identity, that does feel new for us, at least for, for this generation. This is all new. And so with all that's happening, one of the things that we, we cling to and one of the things that we, we really try to make sense of as best as we can is the fact that God isn't surprised by any of this. We are surprised. We kind of come back to that point where you know, we're, we're trying to figure out what's next, but God isn't surprised by any of this. And God has actually told us that he's perfectly working out his plan through all circumstances. He's working out his plan through all shifts in society, all political norms. You know, we as Christians, we often quote that passage of, in the book of Romans, chapter 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We say that so often. I've been walking with the Lord now for uh, about 12 years or so, and, and I've quoted this passage a lot. And you know what? It's really easy to quote that passage when things are good. It's really easy when like the, the trial or the difficulty that I'm you know, navigating is the fact that I'm five minutes late for work or the fact that I didn't get a good night's sleep because of my kid or the fact that something else happens. You know, but when people around me are dying and there's wars and things are falling apart, it's, it's sometimes a little bit more difficult and it's sometimes through gritted teeth that we say these things. But the fact of the matter is that God is working out all things for good. And if he's not, then this is all just lost. This is all chaos. This is, none of this makes sense. And so when we say something like that, we have to stop ourselves and actually ask myself, do I, do I believe that? Do I actually trust that that's true? Is this what I believe about God? And so that's why our text is so very important for us today. It's not just that God promises us something in this text, which he does. It's not just that God is sort of revealing something about the present circumstance, which, although not directly, but I believe he is. But it's the fact that we get to see this God, the Romans 8.28 God, who does all things right. We get to see him clearer. We get to understand him better. We get to gain a deeper insight into why and how he does things for his people. Why would bad equal good in God's economy? Why? Our world is one that seeks to 
actually take the concept of objective truth, it seeks to take the, the reality of something being objectively true, and it seeks to do away with that. Our world is wanting to do away with this notion of a singular reality, especially one that would claim to be absolute. And thus, our world ultimately would reject truth claims. Relativism is the norm, or at least some sort of a show of what would be defined as tolerance, an acceptance of something. Accepting and being tolerant is good, it's noble. So long as a faith tradition or worldview is presented as something as open-minded, so long as a faith or a, world, or a worldview is presented as non-confrontational, it's deemed to be acceptable. Therefore, from our text, what we see is something that is actually incredibly, incredibly scandalous. It makes us uncomfortable, as is the book of Colossians as a whole, for that matter. There's a lot of truth claims being made here, and there's a lot of stuff that is stated plainly and matter-of-factly that leaves no room for gray zones. Jesus is who he says he is. That's it. There isn't no but. It's this is it. Jesus is the one who spoke all things into existence, and he's the only way to salvation, period, end of paragraph. And when, when we say things like that, man, if we were still living in ancient times, those are like drag you out of the city and stone you kind of words. Those are the things that really challenge the reality of what's going on around us. The English science fiction writer H.G. Wells once said this of Jesus, I am a historian, I'm not a believer, but this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. There is no doubting that Jesus has changed the reality of the world that we live in. There is no doubting that the very history of the whole world as we know it, the unfolding of reality, the placement of the church, this bizarre group of people, these nobodies from the ancient world that worship this dead preacher, this teacher, this carpenter, this nomad, they changed the world. How? How? How does that make any sense? Whatever one's belief system is, the importance of Jesus of Nazareth is inarguable. But to take him as the Bible presents him, to take him as more than a historical figure, to take him as more than even the very center of history, means changing everything about our lives. Everything. Many will say that Jesus was a great teacher, and they do. Many will say that Jesus was a noble man, and they do. Many will say that he is an important historical figure, an important religious leader, and then they just leave it there. However, Scripture does not give us the option to leave it there. We can't just say that he was a great teacher and go on with our lives, because our text gives us much, much more. Colossians 1 challenges that very notion. To encounter Jesus as described in our passage and remain unchanged is a grave error. The Jesus we see here is the Son of the one true God. The Jesus we see here is the second person of the Trinity, the uncreated creator who was born of a virgin, who lived a perfect life, and who died to save his people from their sins. That is not just a religious leader. 
Buddha did not die to save his people from their sins. Muhammad did not die to save their people from their, his people from their sins. Jesus Christ died to save his people from their sins, not just in word, but in deed. We are saved, and we are saved and secure forever. That's insane. Do you realize that this isn't just a feel-good ideology, friends? This changes everything. You can't take that Jesus and shove him into a box. You can't take that Jesus and make him fit an agenda. And when you do, friend, beware. You're messing with God. We almost expect misrepresentations and caricaturing of Jesus in the world, right? We almost expect a minimizing of him, a cleaning him up. But I wonder, Christian... Let's not speak of just the world and what's going on in broader culture. Christian, is your Christ too small? I know that there are days when he's too small for me. I know there are days when fears and anxieties loom much greater than Jesus does. Is the Jesus you have in your understanding sometimes just limited to one or two things you can recall about him or his work? Well, luckily for us, Scripture helps us correct that. Scripture helps us correct and complete our view of Jesus, especially passages like this one. Brothers and sisters, the words in our text are majestic. This is beautiful. In fact, the, the passage here is actually called by a hymn by many New Testament scholars. This is a hymn praising and exalting the magnitude of Jesus. And oh, brothers and sisters, what a hymn it is. Don't fall into the tendency to speak of Christ in a reductionistic way where we would basically just summarize him, where we would basically just speak of the virgin birth or the perfect life or the dying on the cross to save sinners, and we just leave those things there. Although they are all very true, don't speak about him just in those isolated ways. In the scriptures, we see a pre-existent Christ. We see an eternal Son of God, and we see an everlasting King. This place is the story of the gospel within the context of God's self-existence. The triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally loving those who would be His. And that places the plan of salvation into a timeless scope, not just a point in history. It's impossible to truly contemplate this and then shove Jesus into a box and go back to my worry. With all this in mind, but also considering what's going on around us, I'd like to remind each of you this morning that whatever's going on in your heart, whatever's going on in your life, whatever's shaking you, whatever's making you uncomfortable, our King is on the throne. Amen? Amen. Jesus is working out His plan. God is still saving sinners. God still loves and cares for His people. Our God has obtained the ultimate victory on behalf of His people. No matter the circumstance, no matter the loss, regardless of doubt and worry, whatever landscape shifts we're seeing around us, Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Jesus is on the throne. And I want us to consider two truths about this Jesus this morning. Just two things that I want us to keep at the forefront of our mind. Christ the preeminent and Christ the reconciler. First, let's look at verses 15 through 20 where we see Christ the preeminent. Let's reread our text so it's at the forefront of our mind as we're considering this. He is the image of the invisible God. 
really pay attention to these phrases. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is preeminent. Our text says he is the firstborn of all creation. What does that mean? There are many misunderstandings about this, actually. And there's actually a number of false or heretical views or teachings about what's seen in this text. Jesus is not created. Jesus does not have a beginning. Looking at the word firstborn, we should consider the broader context of how that, that word is used in Scripture. As, as Christians, we read this as a whole. We don't read isolated Bible passages and build a theology just out of that. We read the whole of God's Word, and we have an understanding of what He's communicating throughout the, the span of redemptive history. And in Psalm 89.27, we read, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. Here, God is speaking about David. And God is saying that he'll make David the firstborn of the kings of the earth. What this is pointing to is this is pointing to the status which will be given to him by God. If we think about this word being used to speak of Jesus' position, our text says that he is the firstborn over all creation. He's supreme over it. He controls it. He oversees all of it. All of it is in his perfect grasp. All of it is in his perfect control. And he knows exactly what's happening within his rule. Who but God himself could be supreme over all creation? Who but God himself could control it and keep everything in its place, ensuring its proper function? Who but the creator and the sustainer of life could oversee everything that works out in the way that it's supposed to? Who? Nobody. It has to be God. It has to be the creator. It has to be the sustainer. It has to be the one that knows it all intimately enough to ensure its proper function. Christ is not just an approximate image of God. He is the exact representation of God. When we want to know what God looks like, we look to Christ. Firstborn isn't first in order, dear friends. It's preeminent. It's primary. It's overall. Consider with me Genesis, where God spoke into creation everything from nothing. He spoke all life into existence what's known as ex nihilo, out of nothing. With just his word, he did that. Think about that. Consider the context of creation. Consider Genesis. And then, with that in mind, think about verse 16 from our chapter. What a timely verse this is for us. We want to think that there's chaos around us when things don't make sense to us. But Christian, you have to pull yourself back from that. And you have to think about who our God is. We don't believe in a God who just let things roll as they will and we figure it out. 
We don't believe in a God who started things out and then just let it, fit, let it kind of develop as it will. God is in perfect control. God knows what's happening around us, and more than that, he is working these things for good. Don't miss what the Apostle Paul does here. Looking at verses 16 and 17, he doesn't just give us a list of stuff. He doesn't just list off different things for us to know and different realities for us to wrap our heads around. Rather, he's pointing to power. Christ is not only firstborn, but he is in perfect, complete control over everything because he brought it all to be, including the powers that be. We push back a lot against whoever's in control. Whatever your political leaning, it doesn't really matter. But we push back a lot. Who is in control? Why are they in control? Why is any ruler in place? Why is any throne where it is? Why is any political party in charge? Why are the Putins, the Bidens, the Trumps of the world who they are? Why do they have power? Why do they have control? Because they grabbed it? Because they wanted it bad enough? Because they manipulated the system? It's all explained by Christ. He's not only the explanation behind these things, he's preeminent above them and in control over them. This is mind-blowing. This is a staggering reality. Because when we start to think, I can't believe that guy took power. I can't believe that guy is doing this. I can't believe... You should believe it. Who is in control of thrones and dominions and rulers? God. Who put them there? God. Why are they there? Because God wants them to be there. I don't know. I don't like it. <laughs> you know, we, we can say these things and then say, okay, well, like, okay, it's not, I'm not, that doesn't mean I'm happy about it. That doesn't mean I'm excited that this is happening, but it does mean that I can trust the one who knows what he's doing. And it does mean that I can leave it in the hands of the Lord who knows that this is the way that he's going to work out his perfect plan. How massive and how powerful is our King Jesus that he is king and not them. These things don't happen by, by accident, friends. These things happen because God wants them to. I'm not saying that to, to trivialize the difficulty of what's going on around us. It makes me uncomfortable, too. I, too, lose sleep. I, too, worry. But the fact of the matter is that God knows exactly what he's doing. And in those moments where I, I cross over into that sinful kind of worry, where I'm not trusting the Lord anymore, I have to repent and I have to remind myself of these truths. Because if he's not in control, we're all doomed. But he is in control. The field of science with its various fields of study and its various brilliant minds has in many ways sought to explain everything in the world in which we live, how it all works, where it all came from, why it exists, and so on. The late physicist Stephen Hawking sought to discover what he called the theory of everything in order to explain all of physical reality. He never did succeed, but our text actually provides this very explanation. I wonder if anybody ever showed Stephen Hawking Colossians 1. They should have. Our text provides this explanation. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, we see that in the truest sense of the word, what is and what was created. This is the theory of everything. This is the truth about everything, not just a theory. Who's at the center of it all? It's Jesus. He made all things and in him all of it holds together. 
If your hand is attached, thank him. If your eye is still in its socket, thank him. John Piper once said, every physical law in this creation is a function of the mind of Jesus Christ. Everything that works is a function of the mind of Jesus Christ. Everything that exists that is held together, it's because of the preeminent one. And so, what do we do with that? You worship him. You love him. You obey him. You trust him. And then look at verse 18. This is so beautiful. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In verse 18, we see that beyond the broader scope of all of creation, beyond the broader scope of every ruler and every throne and every dominion, what Jesus is, is he is the head of the church. And you, you just got to hold on to that, friends. I know that a lot of church landscapes are shifting. Ours is shifting. Uh, last year, we had a pretty rough thing happen. Uh, the year before, one of our elders died due to COVID. <clears throat> uh, if any of you had heard what happened at the Shepherds Conference two years ago, there was an elderly gentleman at that conference who had COVID. That was one of our pastors. He was 90-something years old. Uh, he was a dear old saint, and uh, we loved him. We loved him a lot. But he got COVID, and he got sick and died. And then another elder got COVID and was in a coma for, gosh, a couple weeks. And then he was on a ventilator for something like 50 days. And then he came out of it. It was wild. He, he was not in good health. Like, <laughs> the doctors were sort of shocked. So the Lord really brought him back. But So we lose an elder. And then we had five elders last year leave. Two to plant a church in Idaho. Two to plant a church in Florida. Uh, California is not the only one, not the only state losing people. We're losing them up in Oregon and Washington too. But as these landscapes shift, and as we think about like, man, why isn't that person here anymore? Or why does this look different? Or why, you know, why is this the state of the church in America? Jesus is the head of the church. As much as we may be disappointed, as much as we may want things to be different, as much as we may think that maybe certain shifts or certain you know, changing of definitions or whatever is it's problematic and it's not the way that we want it to go, Jesus is still the head of the church. We got to hold on to that. We got to remember that. He loves his bride. She's beautiful to him. He cares for her. He'll never let her go. He'll always take care of her. All of creation exists for only one purpose, and that's the redemption of Christ's church. Not only is our existence completely dependent on Christ, our salvation is, is entirely and completely dependent upon him. He is the author of our salvation, and it's entirely his, wor his work. Excuse me. The fullness of God dwelt in him. And so you can't miss that word, dwelt. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, meaning Jesus tabernacled with us. The tabernacle was a type meant to point to what it would mean for God to dwell among us, for God to dwell with his people. And so we think about that. Jesus, the Logos, the creator, the one who spoke all things into existence, he comes down and he dwells with us. Don't ever allow yourself to get used to that truth. Don't ever allow yourself to just move past the incarnation and what happened when God became a man, when God said, I will be with my people, when God said, I won't leave you, I won't forsake you, when, when Jesus made these promises to his people that extend well beyond the here and now, but well into eternity. Don't get used to that. When things are shaky, when things don't make sense, grab onto that, hold on to it. 
And then through this, through our God dwelling among us, we, we understand that he did it. He actually reconciled us to himself. We, his people, the church, he reconciles us to himself. He completes that work. He does this by the blood of the cross, as we see in our text. Not by meeting us halfway. Not by merely helping us. Not by just pointing to a way out for us. He does it himself. He takes us and he makes us new and he makes us a presentable, a beautiful bride. Not because we're so awesome, but because Jesus is so awesome. Because Jesus is perfect and he did that thing which we never could. And this tells us that the firstborn of all creation, the one who created everything, the one who spoke it all into existence and sustains it with the power of his word, he reconciles his people to himself. And that brings us to the second part of our text. We've seen Christ the preeminent, the one who is above all, the one who is firstborn. And now we get to see Christ the reconciler. Look with me back to verse, verses 21 through 23. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In these final three verses, we see that this preeminent, mighty, powerful God who has brought his people to himself, and he's made them right and pure and holy. And, and, and remember, friends, this isn't like God waited for us to get a little bit better along the way. This isn't like that we, we sort of made some moves and we adjusted a little bit and we figured things out and then God did that. He took rebels, those who were rebelling against him, those who were on the run from him, he took those people that wanted nothing to do with him. He took those people ruined by their sin and longing for nothing but the things of this world. Us. And those people he has now reconciled in the body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So what do we see in these verses? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. We see the gospel here. The one who had every right to judge us, the one who had every right to condemn us, he reconciled us to himself. For the Christian, this is an incredible truth. If you're born again, this is something that we're going to spend all of eternity praising him for. This is what we're going to spend all of eternity just celebrating and not being able to wrap our minds around the fact that what am I doing here? Because he reconciled in the body of flesh by his death. Friend, have you been reconciled with God? Have you repented of your sin and trusted in God for salvation? I don't know who of you here knows the Lord and who of you don't, but have you repented of your sin and trusted Jesus for salvation? Don't let these truths that you're hearing this morning pass you by. Don't let this just stack up to be something that you kind of learn about God and vaguely have a picture of what the God of Christianity is like really consider what is being said here. This is the only way to salvation. This is the only way to life. This is the only truth. This is the only thing that matters.
cry out to him. Ask him for the faith necessary to believe in him for eternal life. Romans 10.9 tells us that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you trust in Jesus for salvation, the one who created you can save you. He can forgive your sins and he can make you brand new. And as much as God wills for anything to be a part of that new creation, it will be reconciled by the blood of Jesus' cross and only in that way. It's not going to happen any other way. It's not going to come by good deeds. It's not going to come by an earned salvation. It's not going to come by us being better. Only by the blood of Jesus' cross. How does this then connect with what we just saw about Christ being the preeminent one? If we lose Christ's preeminence over all things, we lose the gospel. If it's just the gospel, devoid of the truth of who Jesus is as the eternal Son of God, if we lose our understanding of what it means that the one who created all things makes all things new, we lose the gospel. The gospel has at its heart the, the fact that Christ dies for sinners. If we lose the divinity of Jesus, we lose all hope. There's no power in a Savior in anyone but God himself. He's the only one that can forgive us because it's against him that we've sinned. He's the only one that can redeem us. He's the only one that can make us new. God's aim was not only to make the old creation through the power of his Son, but also to make a new creation through the death of his Son. This God, this magnificent, massive God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and into his marvelous light, as we see in 1 Peter 2. And we hold on to that promise, do we not? Verse 23 points us to the hope of the gospel. That's not just the hope that some will be saved. Friends, that's the hope that God has promised. He's never going to let come against, anything come against me that he has not willed and that he has not ordained for my good. Amen? Amen? We hold on to that. I love that. The gospel is freely offered to all people, and it bears fruit all over the world, and it will have its effect. This isn't merely a proclamation of the good news. It is the word of God. This is the power of God unto salvation, the truths that he has given us. It will win what God intends it to win. And friends, we hold on to that gospel. And we hold on to Jesus. We desperately cling to Jesus. The boat might get way more rocky. We don't know. The Lord might extend some mercy and calm things down. I pray for that. I want the end of the war. I don't want people to die. I don't want people to suffer. I want peace in our country. I want to be able to go out onto the street and not wonder if, you know, Russia's mad at me today. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is we don't know. And so what do we hold on to? Jesus. Brothers and sisters, marvel at Jesus. Stand amazed at him. Be in awe of him. Be overcome with love toward him. Be still before his awesomeness and his majestic beauty. Just stay there. Be humbled by his power and his dominion. While the world around us is on fire and tomorrow is not promised, while fears overwhelm and at times maybe even paralyze us, while evil seems to continuously prevail, we know how the story ends. 
Evil does not win. King Jesus reigns and he will bring us safely home. This isn't home. And the more that we try to make this home, that's rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. This isn't home. That's why we feel restless. That's why this feels foreign. That's why it can't seem to get peace in the present circumstances. But in my heart, if King Jesus reigns and the promise of heaven is ever present before me, I can have peace. Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, once said the following, Oh, no single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest. And there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. That goes for you, friend. Jesus looks at you. And in that moment when you, Christian, feel lost, Jesus says, mine. When you encounter him in his word, when you learn more about him, when you pray to him, when you share of him with others, remind yourselves that this preeminent Savior, this wonderful friend, this gracious, generous king, this mighty creator, he is worthy of your praise and he is worth giving everything up for. Yes, even your worries. If you are his, then you are truly his and he is yours no matter what happens. Jesus holds the whole universe together, every atom, every molecule, and he holds you safe in his hand. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Amen? Amen? Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? King Jesus, we stand before you and we acknowledge that we are frail, that we are fearful, we are prone to worry, And we are prone to be unsure of our next step. Lord, but you are none of these things. Thank you for not abandoning us. Thank you for the fact that when you made us your people, you've ensured our eternal destiny. And you've so ordained our lives as to not let anything happen by chance. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for calling us your own. Lord, bless us as we seek to faithfully represent you to a world that is perishing, that is scared. Help us have the kind of peace and the joy that would show us that we live for something more. Help us to understand that this world is not all there is, although sometimes it can feel like that. Help us quiet the noise around us and to find stillness and peace in fellowship with you. We love you, Lord. Help us love you more. We ask in your name. Amen.